So we are uh, in the second installment uh, this morning here uh, on a, a series that, uh, as I said last week, very excited for. He said, what? Uh, crazy sayings of Jesus. I don't know what's more crazy about this, the fact that we can make a series called Crazy Sayings of Jesus, that he said some of these things like last week, eat my flesh, drink my blood. I don't know what's crazier, that, that he actually said that, or that the book that inspired this series has 70 chapters in it. Um, but welcome again to this series. Uh, before we get to our crazy words this morning, um, I want to show something off here, um, a very lovely uh, birdhouse uh, here this morning. Um, I just want to share a, a common, I think, frustrating experience that I've had. Uh, maybe you've had it too. Uh, flashback, high school days, maybe junior high if you're particularly skilled, but we're talking about shop class with an assignment like building a birdhouse. Uh, frustration of mine, something that bugs me, is anytime you get the instructions that are so vague, it's something like, well, uh, just do the best that you can. Whether it's like a chore or an assignment or um, a project like this, you get the instructions and it's not something so specific that's, um, you know, this is how to make it and this is exactly what I'm looking for, but it's more vague than that. It's like, listen, just do the best that you can. Um, so, shop class, you get it, and you say, okay, well, the best I can, birdhouse, like, quick cut out four sides, two for the roof, put a hole in one, glue it together, hand it into the teacher. It's still, like, wet and soggy, you know? The uh, uh, teacher doesn't question its structural integrity, um, but just merely points out that it may be a, a hazard to birds everywhere, <laughs> and says, okay, I will accept this. If you can tell me, Dirk, is, is this the best that you can do? It's not the best that I can do. Okay, so take it back and maybe file some of those splinters down that could, like, take out a bald eagle or something. And <laughs> sand it down, a little paint, a little lacquer, and hand it in again and go, okay, here it is. I'll accept this. If you can tell me, is this, is this the best that you can do? No, what's frustrating about that is the fact that, not that it's kind of an easy assignment, but... Just because there's like always room for improvement, right? I just want to know what it is exactly that we're looking for here so that I can do that and then like go have lunch with my friends, right? Now, I, I point that out because sometimes it, it feels like following Jesus is a lot like that birdhouse assignment. Right, where, where you don't get clear uh, instructions on this is exactly you know, what we're looking for. When you hit this target, when you hit this bar, you're good, and you can go out to lunch now. The instructions that we get in the Bible about how to follow Jesus are frustratingly vague at times. That, that it, it sometimes sounds a lot like, listen, if you can tell me that this is the best that you can do, I'll accept that. And I just so desperately want to say, no, 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 what's the, what, what's the thing? Like, what's the catch? Like, what is it that you're looking for that maybe everybody else misses? But you can just, God, tell me, and then I can do that, and then, and then I can have eternal life. This morning, we get to go to a place in the Bible. We get to, we get to read a story about somebody who actually gets to ask. Like going up to Jesus and saying, here's the birdhouse. It's pretty good. 
what's the one, what's the thing that I need to do to just, so that I can go out to lunch? Um, and Jesus says, let's read together. Uh, words on the screen, also on the uh, flow sheet uh, on the back of it. This is from uh, Matthew 19. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, uh, teacher, by the way, um, Bible fun fact is that, in, especially in the book of Matthew, whenever anybody starts off by calling Jesus teacher, it's like a sad story. It's going to be bad news coming. So it's like one of these things that you kind of read through Matthew over and over, and you can start to see when they say teacher, um, it's not going to go well for the person asking. When they say Lord, it generally is going to go well. There's like something there about maybe recognizing Jesus as Lord before we can take away any teachings. That's for a message for another time, though. Or maybe that was just it. Uh, teacher... <laughs> The man says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get or to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired, Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, especially on Mother's Day, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come. Follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Like I said, if we're going to classify this into a, uh, into a genre, you know, some, some comedy mixed up in here. So this is a tragedy more than anything as the man walks away sad because he had great wealth you can kind of see why the series is called The Crazy Sayings of Jesus. Because honestly, when it comes right down to it, what we have Jesus saying here after do all the commandments, well, once I've done all of those, what do I still lack? And Jesus looks at him and says, go, sell everything. It's crazy to me to think about standing up here and what am I going to say to you and trying to say the words of Jesus just in a different way back to you all and try to rephrase somehow what it means to sell everything that you have, zero out the bank account, quit your jobs, get rid of it all, and follow after him. It's just absolutely ludicrous for me to think about that. Sometimes when we have these moments that are just bizarre, and there's no way around it. We like to say, okay, well, you know, once you get into the, uh, you know, the historical or the cultural context about what's going on, so once you start thinking like a first century uh, rabbi, then, you know, you kind of like unlock some of these hidden meanings here. The, the exceedingly frustrating part of this whole thing is once we do that and jump into the mind of a first century rabbi like Jesus, and we start to see this, we see, oh, yeah. this makes even less sense than it did before. You see, it was not uncommon in those days for somebody to go, sell everything they had, give it to the poor, and then follow after whoever. 
It was not entirely unheard of. The Dead Sea Scrolls came to town a ways back, um, downtown in a museum. I guess it was a lot of years back. But anyway, um, the whole community that kept those Dead Sea Scrolls were one of those communities of people who sold everything that they had, withdrew way to the desert in this like uh, compound um, that they, they all hung out together and, and lived a, a very scarce uh, life together. In fact, it became so... I don't want to say common, but, but not uncommon at all for, for people to do this, that eventually the rabbis started telling people, okay, don't sell everything that you have. <laughs> like, it's just too much of a stress on, on us, on the system, for, for us to support all of you doing this all the time. So the rabbis actually laid down a rule to say, okay, generosity doesn't mean everything because extreme piety turns into extreme poverty pretty quickly. And that's not your problem now, that's our problem. So they actually put a limit on what you could give away to say, instead of 100%, the most we're going to recommend you to give away, and and to still call it a a pious act, the most we can recommend you give away at a time is 20%. I take the 10% tithe that's talked about in the Old Testament, double it, give that away, and please, please for our sake, don't give more. And so when the man comes up to Jesus, who has great wealth, and he's going, Rabbi, teacher, what do I, what do I need to do? Like, what's, what's your number? I've bought a lot of things. I have a lot of means. What's, how much do you want? And he's got in the back of his mind, okay, I'm willing to give you know, anything from one right on up to 20. And the ludicrous part of this, the crazy saying part of this is that Jesus doesn't say 10 or 15 or even 20. He says 100. On top of that, I think it gets crazier. Because we look at Jesus, and now in Matthew 19, we have uh, 18 chapters of history in Matthew to look back on, and we say, all right, we've got this long history. Jesus had already called 12 disciples who are following along. And the the weird part of that is every time Jesus calls another disciple, he uses the same kind of language. It's it's almost like a a formula that he uses, kind of cues the readers on like, oh, I think we're we're picking up another disciple here. Um, Jesus goes to, well, Matthew, the one who wrote this, and he says to Matthew and his tax collector, come and follow. Two-step process. He finds uh, James and John in their boats, and he goes, come and follow, two-step process. He finds Bartholomew, come and follow. He finds Simon the Zealot, come and follow. He's got these, this two-step process to all of his other disciples that he has called. Come and follow. And now the man comes up to him and says, what do I have to do? Everybody's expecting, come and follow. Instead, instead of a, two process, a two-step process, he, he comes up with this one. He says, uh, go, sell everything that you have, give to the poor so that you may have eternal life. Then come and follow. Like, Jesus, um, not to call you out on the injustice of everything, but this, this doesn't quite seem fair. I mean, disciples going... We only had a two-step process. This guy's got like A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> What's the deal with that? It's just frustrating to see it all. Um, a couple more on top of that, uh, outside of Matthew, but in the book of Luke, 
uh, chapter 8, uh, Luke makes an observation about the Jesus and his followers. He, at some point, they got hungry. They needed something to eat. And, uh, and Jesus didn't miraculously make all of his meals uh, appear, although he did for some. But for, for others, they just simply went to the market and bought a loaf of bread and some fish and had that for lunch. And Luke makes this observation, like, that came from money. And so Luke says, let me just tell you, kind of following the money back, there were a few people who were um, chipping in, who were financing this, and saying, you don't live off much, so it doesn't take much. But Luke says, there are, uh, there are a few prominent, or there are a few well-to-do, and he just says, well-to-do women, who are, who are giving generously to Jesus and his, and his disciples. And get no indication that they're asked for, for a lot, or even if it's a little for them. You get the idea that, it, that it's not much and that there's a lot of them. But, but simply to, to point out the fact, like Jesus knew other rich people, <laughs> prominent or, or well-to-do people around who, who are giving some to him, and, and he never goes up to them and says, go, sell, give, have, come and follow. It doesn't quite seem fair. The last one, outside of the Gospels entirely, uh, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, coming to a wedding near you this summer. Uh, <laughs> Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, in, in verse 3, he says, uh, he says, if I give all that I have to the poor, in addition, surrender my own body to hardship, but have not love. I gain nothing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like a passage like that lies in direct contrast to what we have here. The, the, the point, Jesus, if I can step in and, 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 and kind of teach you a thing or two, the point, Jesus, isn't give everything you have away. No, no. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. The point is about love and caring for your neighbor. Yet, if you're, uh, if you're new to encounter, we try to make it a habit to, to disagree with Jesus as little as possible around here. So we're just left stuck, frustrated at, at what in the world a crazy saying like this could, could possibly mean? To point something out, almost as just a, a bizarre quirk, is that it seems like nowhere else does Jesus demand this outright from someone. Everything. That for some reason, this man can't have anything. And that right there, that right there is the, is the line, is the word, actually, when we can start piecing some of it together. It's this word have that, that's repeated, this, the same Greek word, the same word repeated all throughout. One commentator on this uh, calls it, uh, there seems to be this bizarre preoccupation with having in a short passage like this. It's so that the, the man, when he comes up to Jesus, says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get or to have eternal life? 
And Jesus kind of, kind of tweaks the language, right? And he wants to have eternal life. And Jesus, when, in his answer, says, well, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments, right? So again, like, plays with words. It's mentioned a couple other times, and then just to wrap it all, at the very end, he says, he went away sad because he, he had great wealth, but just to like kind of point out, there seems to be like this is something, having things is something that this man uh, thinks about. Peel that away. Next layer, I think, is way more interesting. Jesus says, you want to enter eternal life, not just, you know, have it, but you want to enter it, follow the commandments. Okay, which ones? By the way, you know, like it's Mother's Day, right? So when she says, hey, I want today, you know, just give me like 24 hours where you, you do what I say, and answering well, which things that you say should I follow? Like, mm, you're kind of off track there. Probably everything. But anyway, um, he, he says, which, which commandments? And Jesus points out that list. Now, maybe some of them sound familiar. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Ten commandments, right? Uh, kind of popular ones. Um, you kind of see them uh, over a few places. Oftentimes when you like picture the Ten Commandments in your mind, uh, you're usually picturing probably like two stones, kind of like open face with writing on each side. Uh, you might imagine ten divisible by two, so you got five on one stone, five on the other stone. Uh, backstory on that in Exodus, when, when God carved these into stone and Moses came down from the mountain with them, um, there is two stones mentioned. And, and you never really find out how they were divided up, whether they're just copies uh, of each other or whether they were split up somehow. So, but most of the time in the tradition that Jesus was operating in, they split them up among uh, the two stones by putting four on one and six on the other. The reason why they would do that is because they looked at what the commandments were. Specifically, you know, the first four were things like, uh, um, like, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make anything into uh, an idol out of me. Make no graven image. Um, don't misuse my name, God says. And then uh, honor my day, honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember it. So you've got those four, and they all kind of have to do with God, with how people, how humans relate to God, all on one tablet, on one stone. And then the other six on the other one. So like honor your, your father, mother, um, don't steal, don't you know, lie, don't murder, adulterate, the rest of them, right? All on the other, the other stone. So as, a, as a, another side note, when Jesus uh, is approached by this and says, hey, uh, which commandment, which one's like the, real, the most important one? And Jesus takes it in his answer. He summarizes each of these. So on the one he goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and mind. Love God, summary of the first four. Love neighbor, summary of the, the next six. Make sense? When the man asks which commandments... Jesus rattles off a list, and, and I'll point it out. I don't think it's a coincidence which ones he chooses. He says, don't murder. That's number six, sixth commandment. He says, don't commit adultery. That's number seven. You shall not steal, number eight. You shall not give false testimony, number nine. Honor your father and mother, number five. And then he even includes the summary commandment of all of those. Love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody catch which one we didn't miss or we didn't hit? Number 10, yeah. 
Jesus, in his response, mentions all, all uh, or five of the six love your neighbor, including the summary. He doesn't mention commandment number 10. You shall not covet. That don't want things. Don't see something across the yard or across the town, across the family lines. And whisper to yourself, why not me? Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't have this lust for stuff. I don't think that it's a coincidence that Jesus leaves that one off from the list to the man with the preoccupation of having things like eternal life. He leaves it off the the list. He allows the the conversation to continue. After all, he doesn't want to make a liar out of the man, right? To say, well, follow this commandment. And then he's got... Two commandments he has to worry about. But he, he moves the conversation along. At the, at the outset of even his question, I think Jesus is, is keeping these things. Now, sometimes Jesus, we see the stories where Jesus sees somebody and, and like it says, and Jesus knew in their heart, like he knew, he knew in their hearts what they were thinking. Like he knew what was going on and it was just so, like amazing. It was miraculous. There was no way he could have known that other than some kind of like supernatural insight or, or something that's going on. Other times we see Jesus and he's just like ridiculously clever. I think this is maybe some of the first, but definitely part of the, the latter too, where he kind of picks up some of these clues on what's going on with this man, like his his preoccupation with having things and he's starting to like like a doctor that's like listen okay tell me more you know like what else is going on he's just like scanning for symptoms trying to figure out what's going on inside of this man's heart he says you you want to have eternal eternal life that that's interesting let's keep this conversation going um another big one he says what must i teacher what must i do to get eternal life um just kind of like uh grammatical, boring stuff on this. But the tense there is an aorist subjunctive, which doesn't mean anything to most of us, but um, including myself. He's just reading a book somewhere. Uh, <laughs> it's a one-time singular act where the man is asking for, like, what, teacher, what's, the, what's one thing that I could do? In birdhouse language, teacher... I want just like one thing that I could do to top this whole thing off so I can hand it in and go have lunch. Like, what's my thing? Is it paint? Is it lacquer? Is it, uh, you know, extra little peg for the birds? Is it food inside? What's the one thing? Everybody has a price that I've come across so far. Maybe you do too. And Jesus says... You want one thing. If I, if I get one thing, if I get one shot, I want what your mind goes to immediately when things start to go bad. If I get one shot, if you're offering me one thing, I want the one thing 
that, that when things start to go really, really well, your heart jumps at the thought of, I want that one thing. For this man, I don't think it has anything to do with how much stuff he has, how much he had his great wealth. I don't think it has anything to do with possessions at all. I think he looks at him and he goes, you know what, I, if I get one thing, I want what you lean on more than anything else in this world. And not for myself. Just go and give it away. Because I want to be that one thing. That works for him. And if you have a, like a, a preoccupation with, with having things, you know, if Jesus would, would look at you and, and diagnose your heart in the same way, maybe you're in the same exact boat as him. And then the, 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 the prescription for that diagnosis, for that illness, is spiritual condition is just to say, listen, maybe it's time that you gave everything away. I don't know. But to make it even more broad for everybody here, I just, we have to like lean on Jesus that it, a bit more to say, what's the, what is it that we ought to, to give away, give up so that he becomes what we lean on, he becomes the, the security that we find. It's, it's frustrating because we don't find that here. We just have a story, like I said, that if you're going to put it in, in a, a genre, it might be drama, it might be some comedy, but by the very last line, we know that it's tragedy. There, there's not a ton here in this installment that we could go off from. Except for this isn't part one of Jesus' words on treasure. This is, this is part two. Go to part one. We go all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount. Still in Matthew, in Matthew chapter six. Um, words on the screen, you'll hear it at the bottom here. And you'll hear some of the same language coming out. It's almost like Jesus picked it up and kept running with it. He says, uh, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then this line I just kind of love as a, almost like a takeaway. For your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, kind of read this. You hear it in Jesus' own language. All the words sort of rhyme together. Just as a, it's, it's much like catchier than even what it seems here, which is, I think, already kind of catchy. But especially just like, you know, um, don't store up for yourself uh, treasures where moth and rust destroy. So it's like moth and rust. I think of clothes and cars, right? But, you know, where, where, but where thieves break in and steal. Um, and then the last line as again, trying to like pull out some of that like rhyming that it came to, something that they carried with them around that they kind of remind each other with and just you know, say a part of it and then everybody kind of knows. But you know, I, I just see this and I hear, you know, I just imagine these people going around saying, you know, where's your treasure? There's your heart. There's some kid like, I, I want this like eye widget. I, I want it so badly, right? And you can just imagine mom just saying, hey man, uh, where's your treasure? There, there's your heart. You know, husbands and wives, just like talking about the neighbors, whatever. Just, well, where's your treasure? There's your heart. Uh, friends going on and on about this, that, or the other thing. Where's your treasure? I don't even have to finish it. There's your heart. Where's your treasure? There's your heart. Most of the time, 
we use that wisdom, and, and it is wise. Most of the time, we use that as, as a diagnostic tool, right? Like a lab printout, to use that language, to, to look at, how are we doing? I mean, like, really, like, where, where is my treasure? Boy, maybe, maybe my heart isn't in the right place. I, I don't know. Most of the time, we use it as a diagnostic tool. I think the inverse of it, this is where the true wisdom of it all works, is that the inverse of that is also true. Not just used as an after-the-fact diagnostic tool, but as a prescription for the cure as well. Where's my treasure? There's my heart. I don't like it. I don't like what this is doing to me. I don't like the the place that my heart is. You ever think that maybe this isn't just a, uh, like, indicator light letting you know that something's wrong? What if that same axiom, where's your treasure, there's your heart, what if that could also be used as a GPS, as a compass? to point you in the right direction? What if you could not only like put your treasure and have it indicate whether you're on the right track or the wrong track, but what if you could take the treasure and put it somewhere else and your heart follows where the treasure goes? The takeaway here is set, set, your, set your treasure. We talk about uh, coveting, we talk about wanting, a cure for that from Jesus' word. I think he's saying set the treasure. Use it as a, as a GPS. Use it as a compass to kind of guide you in the right direction. It, your heart will follow. It's the promise. Looking out in uh, beautiful springtime weather that's coming tomorrow. <laughs> Across the, the back deck on the patio, you can see uh, you know, the lawns, houses, the backs of, of other people's houses, you know. You can start to see uh, just stuff in the yards. You can't, some of you like smiling, you know where this is going. You can start to see, you know, what the things that they have, the glows of the uh, LCD screens and, and, and their living rooms. You can see the, the patio sets. You're just going, like, that must be nice. It must be nice to just to have a, you know, a simple thing, a patio set like that. And just thinking about it. And thinking about, you know, what would it take? Where would I go? The doorbell rings. Head on over. Neighbor girl comes, and, uh, and she wants to go to Central America. She wants to go to Central America to fix, like, the entire area, the entire region. And she's going to do this in six days and five nights, and she just needs a little help from people like you to get there. How much do you want? That's the exact same amount that I was thinking on that patio set. <laughs> Boy, what a weird coincidence. You can easily justify that, right? To say, listen, she's not, she's not going to fix Central America. <laughs> she's not going to right the you know, geopolitical, socioeconomic wrongs that have been going on there for some She's not going to help that. She's not even going to make a dent. They're going to make a school. Like, someone's going to have to watch her and make sure she doesn't get hurt. She's not going to change Central America. But it might change her. Where's your treasure? There's your heart. Maybe it's a time to say, I don't, I don't want to help. What I want is the patio set. I don't, I don't want to help. 
She'll get help somewhere else. Opportunity. Where's your treasure? There's my heart. I don't want to. Maybe over time I will. Maybe if I invest now, the return on that will will be God cultivating a heart inside of me that beats a little bit more like God's. Maybe if I just set the compass, set the treasure there, the GPS, my heart will follow. By the way, when we talk about coveting or, or wanting things, um, I just want to lay it out on the table. Like, I have, I have no ground to stand on. on this. Last week, remember, I, I said something about wanting an orange Camaro, which I kind of regret now. But... Uh, <laughs> No, this isn't about, you know, looking at me and say, well, what about him? I get that. I get that. In fact, to take it even a step further, I think that nobody, nobody can tell you what you ought to want except the one who wants to spend eternity so badly with you that he would die. I want you to stand up. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, you have wanted us. You do want our company. You do, for whatever reason, prefer our company to no one's. And Lord, as, as sinful as we are, as we fall on our face, face as often as we do, God, we are just in awe at your grace, at your generosity. And God, we ask for, uh, for your courage this week uh, to live a bit more like you. In your name we pray, amen.